Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at our regular time, 10.30 a.m., Thursday, April 4th. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hi there. We also have our Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Paula Andalo. This month's patient had a very large bill for a very common piece of medical equipment. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Also, we're still taking questions for our Ask Us Anything episode later this month. If you have a burning policy question you'd like us to answer, you can drop us a line at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Please include your name and where you're from with your question. Okay, let us get to the news. Uh, First, the continuing saga of the Affordable Care Act and Republican efforts to make it go away and Democratic efforts to expand it. Let's start with the Republicans. After we signed off last week, President Trump apparently decided he was getting too much blowback about the Justice Department reversal to support a court ruling that the entire ACA is unconstitutional. Speaking in Grand Rapids Thursday night, he said he told three Republican senators, doctors John Barrasso of Wyoming and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, along with former hospital executive Rick Scott of Florida, to ready a health plan in case the ACA is actually struck down. That apparently came as news to the three senators, uh, as well as Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Who wants to walk us through the the little timeline of what's happened since then and where we are now. (laughs) So McConnell put up with this for like barely a couple days. Well, it was a weekend, right? Yeah. And before he came out and and in a rare sort of rebuke, although it wasn't framed that way, said, this is not happening in this Congress. And I made that clear to the president. Um, This is... Um, one of the only times McConnell has said that about any topic <laughs> with regard to the White House. So he put the kibosh on it, and then both he and the president sort of put out the narrative that along they had really meant that this was going to be addressed after the next election because there's no point in taking it up with a Democratic House that is not going to play ball on repealing and replacing Obamacare. So the new narrative is if and when Republicans win back the House, hold the Senate, hold the White House, then they'll unveil this plan that we haven't seen yet and doesn't exist yet. And yet we're told that it's being worked on, right? For sure. We've been told that. I feel like often and on, though, for a very long time. This isn't the first time we've heard that something's being worked on. So I think that's why, you know, you can hear the skepticism in a lot of our voices, um, because we've we've never seen anything that is viable um, that can pass, you know, even a Republican uh, majority in both houses. So, you know, I I, I think they, they've talked about, you know, working with some of the conservative groups, which like the Heritage Foundation does have sort of a plan. Um, but it, it hasn't been one that, you know, has been embraced and brought to the floor. I think that fundamentally, we're despite all this back and forth, I really feel as if we're back where we were a few weeks ago, where 
Congress and Washington, they're on this dual track. They're going to pass probably some sort of narrow prescription drug bill. We saw this week that um, the House Energy and Commerce Committee moved forward on passing some of those, along with some more partisan bills on the health care law. Um, and the House Ways and Means Committee will be working on that, too, in the next week. And so while they're moving forward on these bipartisan issues, prescription drugs and potentially Smaller doing something small, issues. very small <laughs> bills and potentially something on surprise medical bills and trying to mm-hmm. prevent those out of network bills from hurting consumers. Then we also have this other track where the, the political messaging is going on. And that's where the tweets come in. That's where the vote on the House floor this week condemning the Trump administration's position in the court ruling that the Yes, the Democrats law. pushed that through. Yes. And got, what, so, eight Republicans, I think, eight who Republicans. Voted for it. And one voting present. <laughs> yes. And Colin Peterson from Minnesota, the Democrat who always votes with Republicans, he voted with Republicans again. So, so I think what we're going to see is just this continued discussion where – they're doing a few things so that they can go to voters and say, we hear your concerns about health care costs. We hear about the issues you have with prescription drugs. We're doing something about it. But it's the other party that's to blame for mm-hmm. the broader issues. So, so Trump is clearly trying to appeal to his base um, who hate the Affordable Care Act and want to make it go away. And I mean, you have to wonder at some point, does, does this sort of whiplash of changing what's going to happen <laughs> impact them or do they just want to hear him talk about it and say how much he hates it? It seems like they like hearing him talk about it. I mean, his base does not include all Republicans and a lot of Republicans like pieces of the Affordable Care Act. So there are provisions in there that obviously pre-existing conditions has come up again and again. But there are other ones like young adults get to stay on their parents' plan, that it closes the Medicare donut hole, things like that, that A lot of um, members of the Republican Party actually don't want to come out against and don't want to see gone. Um, So I think certainly it's a it's a good talking point for his base. And I haven't seen anything that that tells me they're you know frustrated by what he's done, even with the whiplash recently. Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill are frustrated, though. Um, oh yeah, because (laughs) because again, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Um, They. Um, like Rebecca was saying, are working on these bills that they feel confident about, both in a policy and a political sense. And they want to tout those. They want to tout the prescription drug bills. They want to tout the surprise billing bills. Um, And they don't want to go back to this fight because this fight lost them the House in 2018. And so it was a complete surprise to them, the White House's announcement. And then the backtrack. I was talking to Republican senators who said, oh, wait, what did he tweet? Uh, (laughs) um, And, you know, we're, we're getting we're getting the latest from us instead of from the leader of their own party. And so it's just you you go around and I've been talking to lawmakers and they they don't even know what. The heritage plan is. Um, I mean, that's one of the few, you know, sort of real serious policies that's even out there. The folks who are in talks and working on something say they're not likely to unveil actual legislation. They're more likely to unveil sort of a list of principles. I mean, we might see a list that says we believe in protecting pre-existing con- things like that. That's like very easy to yeah, say. Yeah, that's, that's their biggest talking point. They haven't yeah. been able to sort of figure out a way to protect pre-existing conditions without all the other things that they don't like, which I guess 
this is what the the search is. Right. And and lawmakers also when when I've been asking them, you know, what what policies are, you know, do you want to see, do you want to push? They they keep going back to things that failed to pass before. So the the bill that passed the house uh, that couldn't pass the Senate and the Graham Cassidy block grants bill that couldn't even get a vote in the Senate because of a lack of support. Um, so they're returning to these old ideas. They're attacking Democrats for Medicare for all. And they're offering sort of these ge- general principles that, that they support. But none of these are new, serious policy ideas. All right. Well, let's, I, l- let's talk about the Democrats <laughs> for a minute um, because there weren't already enough iterations of Medicare for all and Medicare for more. This week we got something called Medicare X from moderate Democratic senators Tim Kaine of Virginia and Michael Bennett of Colorado. It's basically a public option for the ACA marketplace. Where does this fit in the continuum of the Democratic proposals? I think I've talked about this before where it seemed like the proposals, at least on for some people, they were moderating a little bit from Medicare for all to Medicare for some. And, you know, that's where Medicare X kind of fits in. Um, it's a it's a more modest proposal um, than and it wouldn't there's there would be no attack line that could be used against it that it gets rid of your private insurance because that's not part of it. It's an option that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also not even available to all that many people. Right. Right. I mean, unlike yeah, some it of these. Out small. Yeah, mm-hmm. buy-ins that, that start out, that still start out pretty big. Right. This starts out in um, some of the more probably will be rural um, counties that don't have a lot of options. And then it starts expanding from there to eventually be able available to some of the smaller employers and things like that. That's several years out. I think it's in the mid-2020s or something like that when it starts really expanding. Um, so I think this is, um, this is certainly there, like you mentioned, they are more moderate Democrats. So this is something that they're saying they can support because they haven't, you know, we haven't seen them get behind Medicare for all. It's worth noting that Michael Bennett, the Democratic Colorado senator, is thinking about running for president. So because there trying... aren't enough of those either. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And just mm-hmm. that they're looking for somebody who can be a little bit more moderate because, mm-hmm. of course, California Democratic Senator Kamala Harris got herself in a lot of trouble by saying, let's outlaw, outlaw all private insurance, which Republicans love. That's what they want to be talking about rather mm-hmm. than the 2017 repeal and replace efforts and other things like that. Mm-hmm. And so like you were saying about the continuum. So this lands, it's more progressive than just the buy-in for 50 and older, but it's not as progressive as um, the Medicare for America plan, which includes some auto-enrollment and availability to even more people. And it's definitely not as progressive as the full Medicare for all that would abolish private insurance. So not just tons of candidates for Democrats to choose from, but tons of health plans for Democrats to choose from. Um, Well, let's turn to reproductive health, shall we? There is a lot going on at both the state and federal level, and at some point these are going to come together. Um, Let's start with the states. The race appears to be on among conservative states to pass the most restrictive abortion law they can and get it to the Supreme Court first, where they think they might have a five-vote majority. Uh, Who are our contenders? Alice, you you look at this. So there there are a lot of states that are moving to pass these so-called heartbeat bills, where um, abortion are banned at at the point where a heartbeat can be detected, which is around six weeks. So before a lot of women know they're pregnant. Exactly. Um, And so states have been passing them. It's not been allowed by courts to go into effect anywhere. Um, The case that is currently farthest along on the way to the Supreme Court in this genre is a 15-week ban. Um, And so that is at the uh, circuit court level. And so that's the one that's made it the farthest, but there's a lot more in the pipeline 
um, Georgia was one of the most recent um, to pass it. And we're also still Miss- waiting for that one to be signed. Mississippi as well, I believe. Yeah, it's Georgia, Mississippi, and Mississippi. Yeah, and oh, Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah, Kentucky. and Tennessee's and more states are considering it. Yeah, exactly. yeah. There's a bunch of states sort of in the pipeline. I mean, is this is this sort of purely to to get it to the Supreme Court? That was cer- that's certainly how it seems. There's just so many cases on the way to the Supreme Court that could pose a threat to Roe versus Wade um, in different ways or change the standard of what's an undue burden under Casey. And so there's these bans. We, we actually, if folks are interested, we did a, a interactive uh, at Politico explaining all these different cases. So there's ones that restrict abortion based on what time in the pregnancy it is. There's ones based on the method of abortion. These surgical methods um, that are very common would be banned. There's ones based on the age of the patient. There's ones based on all these different things. There's ones based on reasons for having the abortion. Exactly. Actually, actually there's an Indiana law that I think mm-hmm. is also almost to the Supreme Court. Is that yes. the Down uh-huh. syndrome case, I yes. think? Well, it's it's banning abortions when the reason for it is any uh, disability or the race or sex of the fetus. Yeah. It's interesting to me what's going on in Mississippi. They, they have two bans going on. They mm-hmm. had the 15-week ban that was struck down last year, and then they tried again despite that with the six-week ban that mm-hmm. they put in place. And it does seem, since we no longer have Anthony Kennedy on the court, we have who Brett was, Kavanaugh. Right, who, and Anthony Kennedy was the swing vote on abortion, and he did swing on abortion. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he, absolutely. He, he voted different ways in different cases. And as you know, he was pivotal a couple of years ago in the Texas case on all of the different restrictions that Texas was trying to put forward. And he said, no, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. So now that Kavanaugh's there, I think that all these states are testing so many things to try to move it forward and see what the Supreme Court will allow. And we have no way to know what the Supreme Court will allow. But so far, they seem to be going very in a slow and cautious manner and aren't raring to completely overthrow precedent. They had an opportunity to take a whack at it recently with a case related to Planned Parenthood funding, and they decided not to even take it. So I think we're going to continue to see sort of a slow and methodical approach to this. That doesn't mean that the precedent won't change. It could definitely change. Well, it's not just the states. Um, In Congress, Republicans are trying to exploit efforts in some bluer states to repeal pre-Roe abortion laws in case Roe is struck down or significantly scaled back, Um, particularly with regards to restrictions on abortions later in pregnancy. They're pushing something called the Born Alive Survivors Protection Act. Someone tell us what this would do and how it's different from the Born Alive Infant Protection Act that Congress passed and President George W. Bush signed in 2002. Alice. So so the previous bill was more of a a law recognizing the personhood of... Someone who's been born. Yes, which you would think would be without saying. So... Which is why the Democrats voted for it. I mean, the Democrats voted for it in 2002 because they said, you can't kill an infant that's been born. We know that. Right. And so what this does is it adds criminal penalties to a doctor who fails to immediately hospitalize an infant that survives an attempted abortion. Now, there's a lot of discussion over whether this paints a picture of something that doesn't actually happen in practice. Um, but the the fear on the abortion rights side is that it would put a chilling effect on providers' ability to make um, medical decisions with regard to the child and the mother. And particularly in in a case of of severe mm -hmm. fetal anomaly. Yes, yes. So if a child is born with severe fetal anomalies and is in extreme pain, 
keeping that child alive, if only for a few hours or a few days, is that really the best decision? Should the government even be mandating this as opposed to individual medical professionals? This is where the discussion is at. But politically, Republicans are using it to say that Democrats are in favor of killing babies. The, the word infanticide has been thrown around a lot in the last few weeks. And so they couldn't pass it, this policy in the Senate. They couldn't pass it with the Republican majority in the Senate. In the House, they certainly can't pass it, but they are trying anyways with a discharge petition, which needs the number of signatures that a vote would need to pass. So it's definitely not going to get there either. But they're using it to pressure particularly moder- moderate Democrats who could be vulnerable in 2020. Rebecca, we've seen this this sort of using abortion as a wedge issue for as long as we've been covering Congress. Oh, constantly. Does, I it, know. does it feel different this time? Well, I think that um, with Vice President Mike Pence in the office, I think that he is pushing it very hard. I think that where it can make a difference are in some of those states like Wisconsin, Michigan, places where Hillary Clinton didn't do so well in 2016. And now they're looking for opportunities to to have wedge issues that could affect people. And so we've we've seen a lot of this. We've seen the president talk about a 20-week ban on the federal level, and they're not able to do that well, Right, which has also been unable to get through Congress. Exactly. Or, through the Republican Senate. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. I mean, they can't get it through the Senate, even though the Republicans control it. But they want to be able to go out and talk to voters about this. And so I think we're going to continue to hear a lot about it. All right. One more. Uh, Also last week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced another expansion of the so-called Mexico City policy, also known as the global gag rule. That's a policy that's been in effect under Republican presidents since the mid-1980s that prohibits funding of international organizations that, quote, perform or promote abortion. Um, How is Pompeo expanding that? Um, I I guess it's it's taking it one step back to to groups rather than the groups themselves, the groups that fund those groups. Is that I see? The non-government organizations (laughs) that get money. So this came out of a controversy involving the Organization of American States, and they were lobbying in favor of abortion rights. And so um, Pompeo was not happy with that, and he put in language that says that you cannot lobby for or against abortion if you receive federal funding. So it's just another way that the Trump administration is expanding what what critics call the global gag rule. Um, They previously expanded it in 2017. So um, we will, you know, I think that um, Mike Pompeo, Pompeo was asked about the effects that it would have and the fact that there might be, some people say, more abortions because people aren't able to get contraception as a result of, of not having this funding. But he says that's just wrong. All right. Um, still more news from the courts. A federal district court in Washington, D.C. last week struck down the Trump administration's rules expanding the ability of small businesses to create association health plans. The judge, appointed by George W. Bush, not a Democratic judge, said the rules were, quote, an end run around the ACA and not permissible. So what happens now on the association health plan front? So Labor Secretary Alex Acosta told lawmakers this week that he's trying to make a decision. He has to make a decision by the end of May on whether to appeal or not. So he seemed leaning towards appeal and in favor of trying to get a stay on this. 
um, the Labor Department put out this two-page Q&A on what to do if you are actually in one of these plans. <laughs> yeah, there's apparently tens of thousands of people who are already in these plans yes. and getting health insurance through them. Yes, you're right. The Chamber of Commerce said that there's something there's um, expected to be as many as 300,000 in 2020. There's a much smaller number. Yeah, now. They, I think mm-hmm. they said 20,000. Yes. But those were, I think, all Chamber of Commerce plans when presumably there, there are plans that are not Chamber of Commerce plans, too. Yes, exactly. Yes. So the chamber was just concerned because these local um Chambers have been putting forward these plans. And so it's likely that the administration is going to appeal. We're going to hear more about this. The AHP plan uh, decision was on a little bit shakier ground than another issue that the Trump administration is facing on the short-term plans that also is facing Mm -hmm. a court challenge. The Trump administration is more likely to win on on the short-term plans than the AHP plans. Oh, well, we, we will we will not get into an involved discussion of ERISA here. But, <laughs> uh, but, Our readers, our viewers will thank us, I'm Yes, sure. we, but we will get back to this, I think, at some point. All right, finally this week, despite last week's court rulings blocking Medicaid work requirements in Arkansas and Kentucky, uh, federal Medicaid officials went ahead and approved a Utah proposal that not only includes work requirements, but allows the state to expand only to part of the eligible population and to cap how much it will spend at the state. Um, these are all things state have not been permitted to do in the past, right? Alice, you're not it. Yes. And uh, I think there will be court challenges in this case as well. Um, What's interesting with with the work requirements is that each state has to be sued and challenged individually because every waiver is different. And so while the rulings regarding Arkansas and Kentucky will definitely influence other court rulings, they don't apply to other states because each waiver went through its own process and has and has different rules. So it'd be it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Arkansas and Kentucky had particularly strict um, work requirement waivers that were, you know, challenging for folks and, and where it went into effect in Arkansas. A lot of people were losing their insurance. It'll be interesting to see now uh, the New Hampshire plan has been sued as well. If um, states that have more exemptions, a little bit softer rollout. Um, and Utah's is a little bit softer. Yes, it? it is. It definitely is. So it'll be interesting to see if those survive court challenges or not. What about some of the other things in the in the Utah? We should we should remind uh, people that that Utah was one of the states that actually voted to expand Medicaid. So yeah, they is... voted for full expansion <laughs> yes. with no work requirements, and this is partial expansion with work requirements. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is not exactly what voters were were uh, asking for last November. What, what are some of the other things in this plan that, that have made people raise eyebrows, shall we say? Well, the partial expansion is kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Affordable Care Act says that you, if you expand Medicaid, you need to expand it to people who are up to 138% of the federal poverty level. And even though, as you mentioned, this ballot initiative said that that's the route they wanted to go in, Utah decided to go only up to 100% of federal poverty level. So we're seeing already different states looking at this. Georgia passed legislation that allows it to pursue waivers. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to see a lot more conservative states, if they do expand Medicaid, try to go this route, even though it's legally risky. I know. Well, this is it's legally risky, but also there's been this sort of back and forth among even Democrats mm-hmm. about, you know, is it better to have... Better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it better to have a Republican state that hasn't expanded at all, at mm-hmm. least expand some? Mm-hmm. Or do you really need to sort of press the idea that the law said, no, if you're going to expand it, you've got to expand it to the entire expansion population. Right. And and the slippery slope 
could go the other way as well. It's like if you let states only expand up to 100 percent, what's to stop them from trying to only expand to 80 percent or, or whatnot? Or also what's to stop the ones who have expanded to 138 percent from going down yes, to 100 percent? Yes, yeah. And we should point out that over 100 percent, they're eligible for subsidies on the exchanges. So those people wouldn't be completely cut off. But generally having exchange coverage, is still more expensive than having Medicaid. Right. The point of the Medicaid expansion was to capture the folks who couldn't afford even the cheapest exchange plan with subsidies. All right. That is the news for the week. We will now play our Bill of the Month interview, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Paula Andalo, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month story. Our patient this month didn't get the most expensive treatment, but he ended up paying too much for a pretty common piece of medical equipment. So, Paula, first tell us who this month's patient is and what happened to him. Esteban Serrano is a software engineer, and he lives in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and he's also a soccer player. So he was playing soccer last October, and he hurt his knee. So he felt pain and he went to an orthopedist and uh, it seems that it was only an inflammation and MCL ligament, uh, like a soft injury. But he was uh, recommended to buy a hinge knee brace uh, to help uh, him heal. And well, uh, that was when the bill came. <laughs> yes. So tell us, how much was the bill and how much was he expected to pay of it? Well, uh, he received a form when he was at the doctor, he told me. And the form said that uh, his estimate was $700, but he thought at that moment, I'm pretty sure my insurance will cover this. A year ago, he had another injury in his nose. And at that moment... Also playing soccer. Also playing soccer. Yeah, he had to be very careful in the field. And uh, at that moment, he had a different job and a different insurance, and uh, the insurance pay for all of that stuff. So he said, I'm pretty sure they will pay, but they will not. The hinge knee brace costs $882, and the insurance company only pay 52 And why did the insurance company not pay for it? Because it's the code. <laughs> it's the billing code. It was what they negotiated uh, with the orthopedist practice. So he ended up having to pay $829.41 uh, for the hinge knee brace because he didn't reach her, uh, his deductible at that moment. This is a brace that you can buy at a medical supply store yourself, right? Exactly. It's a, uh, it's a Don Joy brand, the one that is specifically he bought. You can find it online for less than $200. Uh, we call Don Joy customer service, and they charge the retail price is uh, $242. So, yes, it's much more <laughs> So it was marked cheaper. up by the doctor, basically. Exactly. I guess he didn't realize at the time that he could have gotten it cheaper or that maybe this was an inflated price. Well, you know, people arrive at the doctor's practice with pain. They think that people take care of them at so many levels, you know, not only uh, touching your knee and tell you you're going to be fine. Uh, the point is that these durable equipment, like uh, could be a wheelchair or, or a, a pan for breast milk, these kind of supplies that people receive at the doctor's office to bring home to heal or any treatment, they cost a lot of money and usually it seems that it's a practice to mark up these products two or three times their original value. 
So what should you do when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you need this piece of medical equipment? Well, first of all, don't be naive. (laughs) Don't think that the doctor will say you need this and you really need all the stuff. Ask questions, uh, being better informed, ask if you can buy it online, if they can help you buy in a different way, and check with your insurance company because you need to know about your deductible. And if you still don't reach your deductible, maybe you have to pay out of pocket a lot of money. Uh, This money could be easily a monthly rent for a lot of people or two or three months of groceries. So in the end, he had to pay this? Yes. Okay. Paula Andello, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. It is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Rebecca, you want to go first this week? Yes, I picked one by my colleague, Sandia Raman. She looked at all of the courtroom challenges that the Trump administration has been facing. Including on, the ones we've been talking including about. Including some of those, yes. And there's so many. Um, she focused on the ones related to the health care law and women's health and FDA. And the FDA has the best record. Um, but there are so many things that have been struck down. And so um, she really took a look at the teen pregnancy program, all of these various different things that have gone forward that the administration has been losing on. And so um, I do recommend it. Uh, It's something that we put out last week and brought it out from the paywall on Monday. And I think that, you know, just looking at the scope of what the administration has been doing and how many losses they've had is kind of interesting. Yes, the Justice Department's been very busy. (laughs) Alice. So I found this piece because a friend of mine who is a doctor posted it on Facebook and said, if you want to cry at work at your desk, read this. And he was not wrong. Um, So this is a piece in the New York Times. It's called Rituals of Honor in Hospital Hallways um, by a a doctor who's a contributor, Tim Leahy. And it's describing what a lot of hospitals are doing um, to set up a ritual for when one patient is about to die and is planning to donate the organs that will allow someone else to to live and have a and have a life and that is you know a very medicalized <laughs> surgical process but for the families who are grieving um, the patient who's about to pass away um, having a ritual in the hospital that many of the hospital staff participate in where they process down the hallway in a very moving way has been um, really meaningful for families and I was just, I was very touched by that and yeah just. We're, we have our heads so in the policy space that just rem, uh, remembering, you know, that what goes on in these hospitals is extremely emotional as well. These are, these are about humans in very mm-hmm. vulnerable places in their lives. Exactly. Anna. Um, mine is from the Baltimore Sun. It's a series, um, but, you know, you can so you can find a lot of the links in this story. It's Baltimore Mayor Pew to take leave of absence in midst of healthy Holly book controversy. <laughs> um, so she's taking her leave of absence because um, she says she's had pneumonia and she needs to leave. But she's in the middle. The Baltimore Sun did this amazing investigation. It's really great local journalism on um you know, this healthy Holly book that she wrote, um, trying to teach kids to be healthier, to exercise, eat better. Um, but she, you know, sat on the board of the University of Maryland Medical System and sold them, you know, 20,000 books a year for several years. So she got like $500,000 from them. She got um, uh, another 100000 from Kaiser Permanente, who then provides health care to the city. Um, and, you know, these weren't things that she disclosed on an ethics form. So it's a really, it's a great 
read and the saga continues. So um, I, I encourage people to keep up with it. Yeah. Mayor brought down by kids' book scandal. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> by, by kids' book scandal and hospitals. Yes. <laughs> All right. Mine is from our podcast colleague, Sarah Cliff at Vox.com, who promises she will be back uh, with us from her maternity leave soon, by the way. Uh, it's called The Doctor Strike That Nearly Killed Canada's Medicare for All Plan Explained. And it's a fascinating read about the origins of Canada's health care system in Saskatchewan in the early 1960s and how hard it was to start a single-payer system even then. Uh, I knew a little bit of this story, but the, Sarah writes it in a way that makes it feel somehow very relevant again today. So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions for our Ask Us Anything. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At Anna Edney. At Alice Holstein. At Rebecca Adams, DC. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.